T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. So why would someone want to go from being a member of a SEAL team to a member of Congress? I'm, I'm tired of being demonized by the left. And we're not going to apologize for the fact that, that we believe in God and we like to have our guns. You know, we don't, we, right. that doesn't make us bad people. You know, you need to, we, we, need, we need some lions for the conservative movement. Sitting in the studio with my colleague, Eric Dame from The Morning Briefing. What's going on, man? Uh, not too much. We are colleagues, aren't we? Yeah. It sounds professional. It does. We're just two dudes that do stuff. I would say the jerk that sits over there, but... Yeah, the really handsome jerk that sits over there. You address <laughs> me by my full title, you son of a... <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's talk about your guest, because I think we were right. both blown away when we met Lieutenant Commander, former SEAL, Dan Crenshaw from SEAL Team 3. Share with me what you thought made these interviews so awesome. A unit in the SEALs in general and Team 3 specifically, uh, a team that featured Chris Kyle and, and many others, that have captured America's attention like no other military unit has in recent years, almost universally admired among mm-hmm. the American public. Dan Crenshaw came into the studio and he was talking to me for a specific reason, and that's because he's wanting to go from one of the most admired segments of the American people to perhaps one of the most despised, because Dan is running for a congressional seat down in Houston, Texas, Harris County. And I asked him specifically questions about, why do you want to do this? What would (laughs) make you want to go from being beloved to uh, just another politician? He has some interesting answers. And he also, of course, starts off by telling the full story of his career. And as I mentioned, he retired. He didn't retire when planned. Something pretty horrifying happened to Dan Crenshaw that affected his life, that affected how other people see him even on a day-to-day basis. If you don't mind, I'm going to just give away real quick the thing you were referring to. Uh, uh, The thing that makes him such an ominous, such a cool, such a hardcore badass presence is the fact he's got a glass eye. He does. And his glass eye not only is a glass eye, but uh, the, the one he was wearing the day he joined us in the studio was blue, and in the center where the eyeball was would be the gold Navy SEAL trident. Yeah, and instead to get of up, a pupil. To get up close to it was just, I mean... Oh, yeah. I know. bugged him. I was like, dude, I got to take a close-up picture of that. And I'm sure he gets annoyed at that, and he doesn't always show it. In fact, I saw him uh, just this morning on national television. He was on Fox News talking about his campaign. And when he does most of his media appearances, he actually wears an eye patch. Right, right. He's like, this is kind of this is kind of the persona that I use when I'm doing that stuff. You know, I cover it up. I don't want people kind of focused on the, the glass eye. I want them focused on the issues. Right on. Let's get to it, man. Good morning, Dan. Morning. Thank you for having me. So... Let's talk about Dan Crenshaw a little bit before we uh, ask you the hard questions about why in the heck you want to run for Congress. Glutton for punishment. There you go. <laughs> Who is Dan Crenshaw? Where'd you come from? When did you join the Navy? And then, I already gave a little bit of a, a away, but what did you do while you were in the Navy? 
Well, from Texas, uh, six generations or so. And um, you know, my family comes from the energy industry, so we're from Houston. Oh. And um, I always wanted to be a SEAL you know, since about age 12. Uh, you know, I read a Dick Marcinko book, a Rogue, oh, yeah. Rogue Warrior. Yep. Um, <laughs> very cool. And I was hooked uh, right from the beginning. And uh, that, that drove, you know, my goals in high school, college, everything. I did ROTC. I was commissioned as an officer in 2006. I went straight to BUDS. And uh, as, as most SEALs will probably tell you, uh, you, you get rolled back. And most guys get injured yeah. uh, going through. I had, in my particular case, it was a, a fracture in my tibia um, right in the middle of Hell Week. So I had what we call the full benefit mm. of getting to do it all over again. I went to SEAL Team 3 after graduating. It takes about a year to two years to, to make it through the training, depending on how many times you get hurt. Right. Uh, started out at SEAL Team 3, uh, met the team out in Fallujah, Iraq, on my first deployment. Uh, did some work in Basra as well. Came back, um, started my uh, assistant platoon commander tour, which turned into a platoon commander tour. <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know, for those of you in the military, you know how things change. Oh, and, uh, adapt and overcome, baby. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so 2010, I was back in Iraq in Ramadi and, um, you know, watching the sort of the, the us wrap up the war, so to speak. Yeah, well, and, of course, a little bit still going on yeah, these days, right. but of course, that yeah, the there was, initial there was, war. There is, there is still, there is still a lot to do, um, and we were doing a lot, and, and I'm really proud of that. And um, came back, and on my third deployment uh, was to Afghanistan. I'm still with SEAL Team Three, and uh, you know that 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 deployment's when my life changed forever. About six months in. Six months in, uh, we were we spent one day in Helmand Province. <laughs> ah, down with the we, Marine yeah, Corps down there, right? Yeah, yeah we were we were uh, supporting a Marine operation uh, in in Helmand. We were normally based out of Kandahar. Okay, we had operated all over the province uh, for the, you know the past six months, and um, supporting some Marines in in Helmand. They'd already taken some casualties. One Marine was paralyzed. Uh, one shot through the neck. Both alive. Mm-hmm. One of our Afghan interpreters uh, stepped on a pressure plate right in front of me. Mm. And uh, I took the brunt of that blast. Kind of feels like you're getting hit with a truck, but uh, you know, while simultaneously getting shot with shotguns. That's how, that's how I generally describe that, that feeling. And, you know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh, probably understand that. And uh, I was blinded immediately. Uh, my body was shredded. Uh, you know, I, I, there was a moment of self-deception to be sure. I, I didn't really know that I was blind. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see, but you just sort of assume everything's okay. Um, and, and I think maybe that you're just falling back on training at that point. Just be calm because you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, have your buddies panic. You know, they need to do other things. They need to continue the mission. Oh yeah. They can't be taking care of just you. And, um, we're all a team in that sense. And, um, but, but again, I think it was more self-deception than anything else. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I think there's just dirt in my eyes. <laughs> like, and, and I truly thought that because, you know, there, there was a lot of pain, but it was, wasn't necessarily in my eyes. It was, it was a very strange sensation. I was able to get up and, um, and make it to the medevac helo when it did show up and, and got out of there. Uh, I think they saw my situation differently than, than, my own, <laughs> than my own perception of what was going on because they put me out immediately. And I woke up, you know, maybe five or six days later, right. uh, a few surgeries later, 
Um, it was in worse shape than maybe we had thought originally. Um, I woke up in Germany after a medically induced coma, still blind, of course, and uh, hallucinating constantly. Um, you know, I, I don't. It's a it's a very not very well known uh, symptom of of going blind immediately. Mm-hmm. Is the, the sort of hallucinations? It's almost like phantom pain. Oh wow! The way, way an amputee would feel phantom pain. Right, uh, right. A similar thing happens with vision. Uh, at least for me, it did, and it was it was an interesting experience. <laughs> Uh, a little bit terrifying, and, and it just went on for days and days and days. Um, and you, and you, would, you would see, I think, the last situation that you were in, and that was Afghanistan. So, I, And I would know it wasn't real, but that's what I saw all the time. And, and you know, some good friends of mine came up to Germany and Landstuhl and, and stayed with me. And I would know that they were there talking to me, but I would see, I would see maybe, you know, one of the many Afghan villagers that we that we were uh, you know, engaging with that day or the days before, I would see villages because you know, that's just the last thing I saw. And um, you know, you'd wake up from dreams and you'd know you were woken up and you'd know where you were, but you were still seeing the dream. Wow. Um, you know, so you're, you're literally living in a nightmare. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, Boy. And the doctors were not very optimistic that I would see again. My right eye was gone immediately. Um, and my left eye was, you know, on the edge. We're not, we're not sure about it. They didn't want to touch it until we had the specialist see it in Bethesda. So, you know, after a couple of days in Landstuhl, it finally got me back here to Bethesda. Then we talked about surgery, and uh, it was, it was a big risk. And well, I wouldn't say risk at that point because everything was already lost. But it was, uh, it was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of hope. You know, yeah. they were like, maybe you'll see some light and shapes. Like, that's what we're hoping for. Um, we got to remove the cataract that was, that was caused by, you know, hot metal kind of searing through your eye. And they did. They, they got the cataract out. Uh, it was unclear, you know, how much I would recover after that. But I could see a little bit, uh, you know, with very thick glasses on. Um, it, it, and for those... Of, for those in the audience who have had cataract surgery, it's a fairly routine operation. You just remove the cataract, you put a new lens in there. You can't do that with mine because right. it was so damaged by the blast. And, uh, but I recovered more and more and it was looking optimistic. And, and then the doctor said, well, now we found a hole in your retina. And when <laughs> you, and, and when you <laughs> surprise, <laughs> and they're like, here's the good news. Uh, you'll probably see a little bit longer. Wow. <laughs> and then eventually that hole will expand because that's just what happens with a macular hole. Right, right. It expands slowly. That's just the nature uh, of, of the way your retina is built. And they can stop that by removing a membrane on the back of your retina because that membrane causes tension, which causes that hole to expand. And the way the doctors put it, I don't remember any of this, by the way, because I was, I mean, I was in a different state. Oh, and yeah. my wife re- retells the story to me in my conversation with doctors and they were basically like, we suggest you just go blind, blind slowly so that you can see for a little bit longer. And, and by the way, you know, I, I put C in quotation marks because I really couldn't see that well. Um, and then, and then their other option is we do the surgery again. It's actually very routine surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in your fifties or sixties, very routine surgery, you get a macular hole, you just fix it. Um, but for me, very dangerous because my eye was so, uh, uh, unstable. And, uh, they're like, we suggest you just go blind slowly. We could do the surgery now, and you'll probably go blind immediately. So, you know, 
choose your options. I'm like, well, obviously do the surgery. <laughs> like, I mean, it wasn't even an option for me. I mean, I, oh, I'm man. like, that's, that's, that's a terrible idea. Just do the surgery. I'll be fine. You guys, you guys think I can't heal. I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so they did. And I was right. It worked, it worked out. Okay. You know, and I, that's a, that's a combination. I think of a lot of things. It's, you know, it's faith, it's belief that you will be okay. And I think that truly matters. Um, when when you're faced with these kind of situations you have to have faith you have to pray and and believe and know that it's all going to be okay it's all going to be okay be okay and it, it also helps when you have very good doctors mm-hmm. you know this combination of things um you will you will overcome anything and we did um that went well. I was blind for many more weeks. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, because that the, the recovery from that surgery, right? Um, it takes a while, and but we made it, and it got better and better and better. I was able to get contacts uh, that that we could use that helped me see a little bit more normal than than giant, you know, plus twelve magnification glasses mm. is, is what I normally would wear. Uh, we got better and better. There's still a my iris is still destroyed, so I can't actually open and close it, <laughs> dilate my pupil the way normal people can. But, you know, that's, those are just details at this point right. um, compared to what we were facing. And, you know, eventually, I mean, it took years later, but eventually I got contacts that, that I, I can actually see out of. Right. And, you know, it's very exciting. And within a few months of, of the recovery, we, it was all I really wanted to do was get back into my platoon and uh, and keep serving in that capacity. You know, I'd, I I had accomplished my dream, and that was to be a seal. And yeah. I, and I, I don't think I ever would have left, to be honest, um, because seals are always looking for that next mission. We care about impact. We care about service, and 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 I think service in the hardest way possible. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that answers your original question. Why would somebody <laughs> leave? Like, what's the what's just the what's the hardest thing to do? Like maybe politics. Um. But I, I couldn't go back into a combat role, so uh, I did deploy again. Um, I took command of a troop of about about fifty people, both SEALs, support, a lot of intel related kind of work. Um, deployed to Bahrain in two thousand fourteen. Uh, worked there. Worked across Lebanon as well. Came back from that and uh, kept fighting the system. Kept <laughs> kept fighting to stay in. Uh, get those medical waivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, never really worked out, but I was able to deploy one more time to South Korea. Uh, 2016 and after that i had to be medically retired right and uh thus begins the transition to you know what's next right and um so i immediately did my master's degree at the harvard kennedy school studying public policy i I knew i never wanted to leave government i knew i wanted to stay in government service in in some form or fashion and uh you know certainly with a with an emphasis on texas um you know looking for careers either in texas government you know thinking about politics but not maybe not immediately right and um as i continued to look and you know i worked for uh congressman pete sessions for a while the american people as they spoke clearly i believe that they stood up and demanded change about action on our economy an amazing man took me right in uh helped me get a feel for what it would be like i think to work in work in congress and then this opportunity came up <laughs> and uh, we got some quick backing and encouragement to go and it felt right for me and my wife 
Um, we, I think we'd known in our hearts it was always the right thing to do. Right. It was my home. I had just been down there volunteering for Hurricane Harvey cleanup. Um, it, it pulls a whole lot of heartstrings for me. And, and I and I just, I, I love Texas. I love what it stands for. I love freedom. I love conservative values. It, these things are important to me. And I, and I think they're, they're getting lost a little bit. A and lot, I, maybe. <laughs> I think that was one of my big questions for you, and that was kind of what is your goal? I mean, first off, uh, you know, as as someone who's served in the military, you know that you have to have a plan in place, mm-hmm. and you have one now. As uh, as we were talking off air, you have to get elected before you can do anything. But what is it that you plan to do if you're able to achieve office? Well, like I said, I I strongly believe in conservative values, and I feel that they're slipping away. Um. The people I'm running against, we're all going to agree on policy. We're all going to be very free market, very free enterprise, right. um, constitutionalists. We're going to be socially conservative. And not only do I believe in that, but I believe we're losing it. And I think we need leaders with credibility who can speak to the next generation. Biggest fear of mine is that, is that our party, our values slip away. We're being demonized constantly. And I see it. I mean, geez, I went to school at Harvard. Okay. <laughs> Hey, um, as a native New Englander, yeah, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, and um, that worries me. I think there's a shift in, in balance and thinking in this country that I do not want to see happen. Now, it's right about here where a lot of conversations with politicians end. The TV only has time for that soundbite. Biggest fear of mine is that is that our party, our values slip away. But Dan isn't a typical politician. And in fact, sitting with both Eric and I for two different interviews, he was really just a veteran talking to a couple other vets. We were lucky enough to get him to talk to us about a couple different positions he has on some major issues. A lot of politicians are going to grandstand and they're going to have a talking point. They're going to say, I'm strong on national security. But what does that mean? Um, I also believe that given the world we're in, right now you know with north korea and their their you know, new intercontinental ballistic missiles that could possibly reach the united states it's only a matter of time before they put nuclear warheads on these things we need people who have a little bit more relevant experience in these things not just talking points mm-hmm. um you know it takes years of classified briefings and experience to really understand the department of defense the intelligence community and, and what is needed, what is not needed, how to assess programs in the right way and, and, and really make a difference. Um, it's not just North Korea, there's a lot of other issues. Uh, you know, in the next eight to 10 years, we have the Iran nuclear deal beginning to expire. And what happened to our leverage that we had before? Well, it's gone. And we're not talking about these things. We're not talking about smart whole of government approaches to thwart these vets and to, you know, to, to, to combat Iranian influence in that region. Do you even know what whole of government approaches mean? Like, do you know how to integrate the intelligence community with special operations, with conventional forces, with the State Department into a very powerful machine? And is of, that of the essence policy? of whole of government approaches? That's how that, I would describe it. Yeah. yeah, you know, and it's not something we do enough of. Um, again, we need people who have been there and done that, who have worked these issues like I have. Uh, that's important. People who will be honest with the American people about the fight against terror mm-hmm. and what it takes. To, to win that. You know, I, I like that we have a president right now who's not talking about timelines in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. He's not talking about their obs- an obsession with troop levels. He's talking about impact. That's important. And that's important. And, it, and it's time we be honest with people about what matters. You, you can't always tell citizens what they want to hear. 
no. have to be honest. We have to be. We have to remember what happens when you leave a vacuum in places like this. We, yeah. we just saw it in Iraq. We 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 saw it a long time ago. But it's you know for some people it's a lifetime ago. Some people don't a lot, and this generation doesn't even remember September 11th. Yeah, but well, 16 we do. Years ago, if you're 21, you're five years old when it happened. I yeah. mean, it's 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 getting up as it's, as Jake and I were just talking about. I, I we talked about those older veterans before, and man, I'm becoming one of them. I just turned 38 years old. You yeah, know? like I'm almost one of those guys. So as a veteran, as a former Navy SEAL, it's not surprising that he has some thoughts and some insight on national defense. And as a Texan, not surprising that he has some thoughts on border issues. Getting people who understand the operational side of border security. You know, we had we had a, two border agents. One was killed. One was hurt. The other uh, just this month. And why did that happen? You know, in the SEAL teams, we would always have aerial surveillance before we before we went and checked something out. Right. And these guys don't. You know, we have to. We need people who ask these questions. Like, why can't we get them cheap, just over the counter? Right. Drone surveillance. This stuff's easy. And they're like, let's get these guys what they need because we do not want our people getting hurt there. Uh, while we're there, wall, no wall. Um, what's your stance on the wall? Yeah. Well, yeah, listen, border security. You know, it, this used to be a bipartisan issue, <laughs> agreement, right? That right. we that we had. We need to secure the border, whether it's a wall where that makes sense. Or, or more more drone surveillance, more sensors, more people. Give give these guys what they need to secure the border. Let's do it. We, we it, we're done talking about it. Right. And I'm glad we have a president who is willing to say it. And he's been demonized for it. Right. Why? You know, it, we're, this is we are a nation. It's okay to have borders. Every other nation has it as right. well. Do you think sometimes we get too tripped up, too caught up in arguing over the small? How do I say this? The small border. Of course, <laughs> you know. Do, do I need to expand on that? Yeah, it's, it's we do it a lot, um, but these are still important conversations, you know. Okay. And, and we attack each other all the time, don't we? And maybe that's what you're getting at, you know. We let's let's assume, let's just try to assume that we all have the best interests of the country in mind, um, you know. As a conservative, a, a very conservative, yeah, yeah. I like I, I'm tired of being demonized by the left, and we're not going to apologize for the fact that that we believe in God. And we like to have our guns. You know, we, we, right. that doesn't make us bad people. And if you got to know us, we're not bad people. We're great people. And it, I think it's time that everybody put their swords away and maybe understood yeah. that we're all Americans and we love America. And it's okay to talk about patriotism and just love of this country. And I think if you can back it with a substantive argument or a cogent idea, something that is uh, applicable to the situation you're talking about, and you're yeah. not just standing up there wrapped in a flag and, yeah. you know, saying God and guns and football Sunday, hell yeah, right. but you have a command of a situation and, 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 and an insight into solutions to problems, that's something I want to hear more of. And I'd be willing to hear it from either side, right or yeah. left. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. mean, like, let's see where we agree, and let's talk about yeah. the paths to that end goal. Now, oftentimes they're very different paths, and sometimes, and it, lately, it seems like we don't even have the same goals. Yeah. Um, uh, to that, are you are you ready for the frustration of getting inside the Capitol Hill machine where stuff just seems to lock up on a partisan line? I mean, are you ready to have a conversation and basically tell some people, look? You've been here for 40 years and shit has not changed. Yeah. I mean, are you ready to call some people out and get get in the ring with them? Well, I, I'd like to think so, yes. <laughs> you know, um, am I ready for that kind of frustration? I don't know if anybody's ever ready for that. Um, I'm not a politician. You know, I, 
I'm doing this because I believe in leadership and I be, believe that when you have a representative, you should be proud of them. And you should know that, man, that guy, he's got my back, right? And that's something you learn in the military. You learn that there's nothing more important about leadership than having the back of the people who are willing to give you that gift mm-hmm. of following you. So that's what it is in the end. It's a gift and it's only given to you by people who are willing to follow. And just have their back. Just yeah. take care of your people. It, it's kind of a contrived thing we always say in the military, but then you realize that maybe we're the only people who say it. <laughs> and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems so obvious, but that's all you got to do. Just just represent the interests and and lead them. You know, like have those opinions. Yeah, call people out. Absolutely. Mm. You know, you need to. We we need we need some lions for the conservative movement because uh, we're my one of my biggest fears is that our movement dies with this next generation because the left has effectively demonized conservatism in many ways. And I don't think that's any way to run a country. I think it's, you need both sides of the argument and right. uh, you, you need to hear those fairly. And uh, you know, that's what I plan on doing. I can only imagine if like science went about its deliberations and its investigations this way, you know, where like if scientists that didn't agree with one study just simply talked smack about the other scientists yeah. as opposed to doing that is another sort of happening study. Now. <laughs> that is, I mean, <laughs> that actually never, is happening. Yeah. We'd have never invented pasteurized damn milk if we just looked at Louis Pasteur and talked about how we didn't like him as a person. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, these <laughs> these ad hominem attacks. It's it's it's, it's unhealthy. It's yeah. unnecessary. You know, it, we just it's it's the norm. Yeah. Now and we and we've been and we've become so used to it that it's almost tough to get people charged up about something yeah. really worthwhile because we get too caught up in the minutia. So uh, I'm glad to see that uh, you know you're gonna pardon the navy pun here, but try to take the helm and uh, you know do what's right for your district in Texas. Helm, yeah, as we uh, <laughs> as we coined this. Uh, in this fact, past game. Hey, let's wrap it up there. And my research for the uh, other incredible issue that happens once a year, the Army-Navy game just completed this last weekend. Um, I talked to my friends over at like Ranger Up uh, Apparel and uh, I actually was watching their video on YouTube. There's got to be some job I can do in the Navy. What do you think? I could be a Navy SEAL. Do you have nine different hair care products? No. Can you balance a ball on your nose? No. You're not a Navy SEAL. I'm afraid to ask this question, but I'm going to. It was told to me by many people in the army that uh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> SEALs are concerned uh, with really two things. Uh, that's uh, completing the mission and um, hair care products. Uh, is it true that all SEALs have like nine different kinds of hair gel? Uh, four or five. That's, uh, <laughs> we're not going to lie. I mean, we're, we're, listen, there's a lot of jealousy in these communities. <laughs> there's a lot. You know, there, we, you know we're... Those are good-looking guys, and you know we're proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna lie, there there's some handsome sons of bitches. It is true. It is, it is good. Always appreciate your time, Commander. Come back anytime. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's assume. Let's just try to assume that we all have the best interests of the country in mind. Um, as a conservative, I think it's time that everybody put their swords away and maybe understood yep. that we're all Americans and we love America and it's okay to talk about patriotism and just love of this country.
really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 